Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. And now, here's a double shot from our featured artist today, Dana Cooper. And stay tuned for that interview. It comes up right after these songs. I wanna run and never fall down I'd be number one if I could figure it out I can face the truth, but please not today I can face the truth, but please not today I've stood so long, I'd like to sit down I've sung my song, can I take my back? I can go long, baby, just not right now I can face the truth, but please not today I can face the truth, but please not today I can be a fool, I can be a creep I can be so cruel, it's a wonder I can sleep You got your complaints, give it to me straight Baby, can it wait just one more day? Truth will set me free, truth will slap my face Truth is I'm weak Truth is I'm afraid Afraid of my own life The damage that I've done Afraid of what I'm not And what I might become Yeah, I can face the truth But please not today
Down the flowers, lay them on the grave Don't count the hours, time will not be saved I'm not a coward, but I'm tired of being brave I can face the truth, but please not today I can face the truth, but please not today I can face the truth, but please not today from his brand new release and we got dana on the line hey dana how you been all right richard how you doing i'm doing pretty well now this is the first time you've been on our show and we always like to give our fans an opportunity to get to know who you are 
And the best thing to do that with is, is your journey, how you got to where you are today and how what was your journey that, that brought you here. So give us the story of Dana Cooper. Well, it's a long journey, Richard. Uh, I'll try to I'll try to uh, short it down a little bit. But I uh, I grew up in Missouri uh, and uh, outside of Kansas City, a place called Independence, Harry Truman's hometown. And my dad is a steel worker there, and my mom was a a car hop, and also ended up working on computers back in the early days. You know, as a key punch <laughs> operator, and and uh, I just kind of grew up in a household where my mother painted, read a lot. My dad was a you know, they were blue-collar people, but they were very kind of artistic in their taste. And uh, my dad loved music. He took me to my first concert when I was three years old uh, to see Ernest Tubb. Uh, and uh, that was a long time ago, as you can imagine. Most people now wouldn't know who the hell Ernest Tubb is. But, um, uh, yeah, and, and I just kind of, I think I kind of knew then, I had an inkling of what I wanted to do. Um by the time I was 12, I started writing songs and uh, got a little guitar when I was 12 and snare drum. I played in a little school band and had basement bands and, you know, played a couple of car, uh, sock hops and things like that. And uh, by the time I was 16, I guess I was starting to play in coffee houses and play out in full-fledged bands around Kansas City. It was a great place to, to be, real good music scene back then. And so I'd mix up my shows with, you know, my own songs, uh, as well as uh, things from musicals and songs by Duffy St. Marie, The Beatles, uh, you know, Michelle Legrand, whoever, whoever I, Bob Dylan, whoever I was into at the time, and I was kind of into everything, so, um, yeah, kind of a voracious listener, uh, certainly was then, probably not as much now, but, and uh, I, I eked along, did a college coffeehouse tour um, based out of the East Coast, um, and uh, all through the Midwest until I got let go for using bad language at a Lutheran college I performed at there in, uh, in, in Minnesota. Uh, I went to L.A., uh, followed a lead, a guy I knew there who uh, worked at Screen Gems Films. I met at a, a party I was playing, a uh, 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 coming out party for some folks in Kansas City. And uh, I had a, an invitation to sleep on this guy's couch. And... Uh, everyone out to L.A. Bill Barnett was his name, so I went out there and did that and met a fellow he knew named Stan Farber who took me around to every label in Los Angeles, and uh, eventually we got a deal from Electra Records. So when I was 21, I was recording my, my first album on Electra Records with Leland Sklar and Russ Kunkel and Jim Gordon and Joe Osborne, and uh, just an incredible cast of characters that I got to pick by hand players I wanted on there and uh, made that record and then you know a year or so later I was dropped and kind of started all over again and ever since then it's been a I've been more or less an independent artist I was went to Texas in the uh, late 70s uh, met up with my old friend Shake Russell from Kansas City we had bands back there when we were teenagers and he had a real successful thing going in Houston so I went down there and moved to San Francisco at the time and we started up and played for four or five years in that band and played Austin City Limits and made a few albums and uh, worked with folks like John Vanver, Michael Maskus, old mentors of ours. Uh, and then I started my own band after that, DC3, which was a power trio. I played electric guitar and 
I've been playing acoustic and electric in the band with Shake and just kind of went mostly to electric for a few years with those guys. And we had a blast playing college uh, colleges mostly and, and bars and, uh, and around Houston and Austin and Dallas. And, um, and just kind of, uh, it was a total departure from what I normally was doing as a songwriter. And uh, then I just kind of gravitated back about 86, 88 back into uh, a solo project I did in Houston. I hadn't done one in a long time and had never done one actually like that that I produced and uh, it's called Complicated Stuff. That opened some doors for me here in Nashville. I started visiting over here uh, because I had several friends here. Josh Leo, primarily an old friend of mine, very successful, very talented fellow. And uh, at their, uh, at these friends' uh, encouragement, I came here and slept on their couches for a while until I got kind of got established here. And my wife and I moved here in 88, I guess, and uh, been here ever since. And I've just been putting out an album on Compass Records and uh, um, a couple of indie labels. Um, and uh, King Easy Records with John Condon. He put out a record of mine. Uh, and the other things I've been doing have just been independent releases and uh, funded through my fans and out of my own pocket. And, uh, you know, just kind of a, a reason where I'm today with the new record coming out. Okay. Well, let's talk about that new record. Um, when you were putting this together, what was your, your concept or your goal for this? Well, it kind of came uh, upon me suddenly. I really had just been thinking about possibly, you know, finishing up some songs for a project. And I, I figured probably in about some time in that year, I would I would begin a project. I had no idea how or with who or anything like that. And um, I went to see a friend here in town play, Jeff Thornycroft, and and a fellow named Dave Coleman, uh, uh, essentially his band, the Coleman, were backing uh, Jeff up that night. And and I'd seen Dave play with many people over the years, you know, Amelia White, and uh, just a lot of folks I knew here in town. And uh, um, it's just a tasteful, uh, really thoughtful musician. And uh, and I saw him play that night. I went up to him. He kind of always looked uh, terrified of me whenever I saw him somewhere. We'd speak, but we never really talked. And he confided in me later that he had met me when I was on Compass Records here in town. I'd gone in there. He was a, an intern. And and I guess I was kind of disgruntled that day with the label. So uh, I don't think I made the greatest impression on him. I think he was, he, he was kind of scared of me. <laughs> and then, uh, So anyway, we talked a little bit. I told him how much I appreciated his musicality. And... And he said, well, you know, we'll say about you, and I'd love for you to come check out my studio. And, uh, yeah, if you want to, we'll even record a song, see how you like it. So I went by and listened to some of the things he had been working on and was real impressed with what he was getting in his little basement studio there. It's like, well, yeah. So I played him a new song called I Can Face the Truth, and uh, by in a couple hours, we had it recorded. <laughs> and uh, I just loved uh, it was just a real fresh take on it. It was uh, there wasn't any planning, and usually I just plan my my stuff to not to death. But I really, you know, I'm I'm a stickler for rewriting. I'm a stickler for rehearsing, playing the songs out live, getting you know, the arrangements really honed, 
And and there wasn't a case on this one because, uh, you know, we were almost as soon as we started, it was right, it was October before the pandemic hit. I was out on the road, uh, had to beat my way back home here, slept in my car, coming all the way back, and uh, just locked the doors for about a year. And uh, Dave and I would intermittently work on the project once... We'd been isolated for several months. Um, we wore masks and worked in different rooms together. And, and I got a lot of friends. That, you know, Early on, we'd had some uh, great rhythm section coming in play. Paul Swift on bass and uh, Chris Benelli on drums. And we ended up using them again later. But you know, the whole project was interrupted over and over. And there were long periods of, of just kind of waiting you know, to get back to it. And in the interim, I was busy writing more songs and... Uh, adding some of those in, resurrecting an old song of mine that I'd never recorded uh, while I'm just passing through here, and uh, which seemed real appropriate with all the struggle and loss we saw that, over that year. So, yeah, it was just a, it was a real different way of doing it for me, and, you know, it was a real luxury to have that time to live with the tracks that we'd cut, to figure out what to do with them next, uh, and in the mixing process as well, we took a lot of time. We did a lot of remixing on things, um, fixing things that we weren't quite, didn't think quite cut it, you know, like replacing a, a drum sound or something with a, you know, overdubbing a different drum over it and that kind of thing. Uh, a minimum of that, but mostly just sort of living with the mixes and coming back in and trying something different and working with the sequencing. It was all very kind of languid. <laughs> there was no, there's no pressure because who the hell knew when you're going to actually be able to release it and uh and what would how would i even do that you know so uh yeah okay now let's talk a little bit about you as a songwriter you know nashville is known as a songwriting town that's kind of its bread and butter uh, and it takes it very seriously because, you know, a lot of songwriters there, they they approach it as a very structured environment. You got writing times, you make appointments with co-writers to, you know, write, you know, and, and they do it, you know, they from 9 to 12, they write, they take a break, they write, you know, and then go in the studio in the afternoon. But what is your process when you sit down to begin the write that allows you to tap into the muse? Well, for me, I mean, I did a lot of that stuff when I first came here. I did those scheduled rights, and uh, and I do still co-write with people. But over the years, I've changed my whole tack on that. I'm I'm just writing with friends that I'm comfortable with writing with, who whose writing I admire. You know, with Tom Kimmel on this new project, and with Kim Ritchie, folks like that that uh, I'm comfortable with. Kim Carnes and I've written a lot together. But you know, I started writing on my own. It was many years before I ever co-wrote a song with anyone. And I only immersed myself in it when we moved here. And uh, it's funny you say, and people do say Nashville is a, you know, a, a songwriter's town. It's a, a songwriter say it's a publisher's town. And publishers say it's a record company's town. And now I don't know whose town it is. I mean, really, I, I don't understand what goes on with the whole way songs are done now. I, I, I really removed myself from that because... I was so immersed in it for a few years that I felt like I was kind of losing my uh, my way, my own way. And, uh, and I was co-writing everything, and I was writing songs that I wasn't playing. <laughs> so um, 
I just dedicated myself to writing that whole album, Miracle Mile, and I worked with Josh Leo on that. He produced that with me. And that was such a such fun to do. I really and that was when I kind of realized yeah, I, I sort of have kind of unconsciously gone through my process over the years. As I've gotten older, and particularly I think that project really, that time of writing the songs in that year's time really um, chained me into how much I rely on rhythm, uh, how I get melodies out of rhythms, and even lyrics I'll get uh, a rhythm and a melody out of the cadence of a lyric, you know, just a spoken lyric. Uh, something to help lead me into a melody anyway but uh my process is kind of all over the place i just really many years ago started making sure i always had something to record with it was my phone or a little digital recorder or the old days a little portable tape recorder i went through a lot of those things i've got boxes and boxes of cassette tapes and <laughs> nothing to play them on now but um it's uh I always have to have something nearby to catch capture it because usually it's just little sketches of ideas. It isn't and a whole song comes to me once in a while in and of itself, but uh usually I don't have the time to sit down and do that. I'm doing so much admin work and driving and touring and that kind of stuff. Uh, I just have to always be able to snatch a little rhythm if I pound out on the steering wheel or something I hum or whistle or speak into a recorder, and I'll scribble things into a notebook. I always have a little notebook in one of my pockets that I walk every day, and usually when I walk, I get some kind of ideas. Uh, you know, a small percentage of those will be things that I'll actually finish uh, as a song, but I inevitably find... As I go back and listen through and read through these things every week or two, I always find something in there that is, has possibilities, you know. So, um, yeah, that's my deal. I kind of look at it as, as I used to paint and draw a lot. My mother was a painter. And I had art scholarships when I was young, and uh, I don't do that anymore. But I kind of look at songs that way, I guess, and keeping my notes and uh, uh, recording ideas uh, as much as I can. Um it's like having a sketchbook, you know, out of that, that's where you're going to get your masterpiece. It isn't necessarily, you aren't going to necessarily stand in front of the easel and, and whip that thing out, you know, so. Okay. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about um, that moment where you have to declare the song done. Because you had mentioned earlier about how you're very into rewrites. And, I mean, you can get to the point where you can rewrite the hell out of a song and, and, and actually, you know, do more damage than good. You have yeah. to get to that point where you say, okay, I, I'm done here. You know, it's time to move it on to production and allow the, the producer and the musicians to kind of put their take on it, their fingerprints on it. What do you do to determine that moment in a song's life? Well, um, and again, that varies, you know, from song to song, obviously, because some of them, sometimes it'll take me literally years to kind of keep going back to an idea. I can think of quite a few songs right now that have taken me that long, over that long a period, to actually find what they were and finish them. But uh, but normally, um, where I'm a stickler for co-writing, I also... Uh, I agree with you. Uh, you can't overdo that. And uh, it's like, uh, you know, I know so many friends of mine who've recorded their own 
recording projects at home and and they just get into that hell of it's the, the mix is never ever going to be right you know they, they're going to got to remix it yet again and they can do that with a song and writing a song as well but i i tend to um uh, since i perform so much when you know i'm starting to get back to it finally now and and i over the years i've done that so often that i'm always writing those songs for that audience that i'm about to go play for so i record everything each stage of the writing process listen back to myself doing it uh try to pay a lot of attention to how I'm performing it and what needs to change to make that more effective as well. But then I take it out and I play it for people. And as soon as I know that, you know, when I feel comfortable with uh, with playing a song in front of an audience, then I know it's uh, I know it's finished and uh, or it's close to it or I'm just going to abandon it. And occasionally I've done that with a song where I just I didn't feel like it. It just didn't end up being didn't cut the mustard. Um, but uh, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting uh, issue, though, because I think it's true for all creative people. I mean, you, you're creating something out of nothing or something mysterious. Uh, how, when do you decide? It, it's definitely up to the creator to to make that to make that call. And uh, um, I just kind of always wanted to get it to been anxious to play it for people that's the thing I think that's always driven me so that I don't lollygag about it it's like I want to make sure it's right but also uh, I want to get it out to people and see if it makes them feel good if it does then you know I did a good, a good job okay now um, let's talk a little bit about uh, getting it out there um, you know every time you create a project you have to put the team together to help you know, get it to press, get it to radio, uh, and you're working with Adam Dawson from Broken Jukebox Media. Tell me a little bit about that relationship. Well, I met, uh, I just met Adam um, some months back uh, and hired him. I'd, I'd been interviewing folks and uh, had a couple of folks I was interested in, but what drew me to Adam was uh, all the many artists that I know, a lot of them in Texas, because I spent so much time down there, who have worked with him and are repeat uh, clients of his. You know, uh, That's a good sign to me. And I talked to a couple of folks, and I read a bunch of recommendations. And it just, uh, uh, and then after talking to him, I just, I, he's got an easy way about him. I, you know, it's kind of a no bullshit thing. I, I like... Um, I like his directness, and I like his record with people. So, this is a new, uh, a new relationship. I'm really excited about it. So far, it's gone great, and uh, this is also new for me to hire uh, folks like this. I've had people working with me in the past, uh, some labels I've been on, and I've had, uh, uh, and I have hired a couple of people over the years to, to work records and stuff. Always uh, with disappointing results. <laughs> I was never, and the most artists I know who've been on labels and have worked with publicists and radio promoters. You know, there's a there's a kind of disillusionment running through everybody out there. Um, but it's such a crapshoot business, and you know, no one, including Adam, can guarantee anything's going to happen. They, all they can do is make that effort and put it out there to people. You know, so if you're doing the good work and giving it to them. Uh, I think he's quite capable of what he's doing, and so far, you know, it's it's been it's been impressive. We've only the, the album isn't even out yet, so once that's out, I know that that's where we're going to really see uh, the, what the real response is. So, um, 
but yeah, I'm I'm I feel very fortunate to to be to have this campaign funded through Indiegogo. I did a funding campaign and it was very successful and it gave me uh, I didn't have to dip into my pocket quite so deeply this time to put this out and to hire the people that I need to to, to work it. So it's a good feeling. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about the industry as a whole. Um, we you know we know that. Streaming is a way now that the consumers consume music. Um, and the offshoot of that is that they no longer look at recorded music as a product. You know, it used to be you'd go to a record store, or you would buy a CD or tape, or whatever the case may be. I'm an old guy. I mean, you know, I my musical, you know, catalog started with vinyl and, and pretty much repurchased every new format. Um, yeah. But now... There is nothing to purchase. There is no, you know, it, it's all about the streaming. It's even the cars today, you know, are Bluetooth enabled instead of having CD players. So yeah. people can stream from their phones. How has this new shift in, te- in, in perception by the consumer affected you as an artist? Oh, it's affected me enormously. I mean, I, I'm, uh, I'm a bit... Uh, at a loss with all of it, honestly. Um, you know, up until I took on a, my new manager, Corinne Thames, and, and she's just been working so diligently and, and amazing work she does with me and for me. Uh, and she's got me uh, a, a small presence on Spotify now, and I mean, it's small. I had pretty much no presence there. And, uh, you know, it's... Uh, uh, as I do gigs, my fans still want to buy a disc. Even if they don't have a CD player, they just wanted some sort of a memento, I guess, um, and they just want to show their support. But in general, yeah, beyond that, you're absolutely right. Um, it's greatly diminished, uh, of course, my royalty income, which was never huge to begin with, but it was something, and it's kind of next to nothing now. Um, but I don't know. If if I can learn a new trick, but I certainly am uh, striving to work with people who who can and can maybe help help me too, um, and uh, um, that that's kind of uh, the feeling out there amongst other you know my fellow songwriters is pretty grim. You know, people aren't artists aren't very happy about what's going on and. Uh, it's amazing to me that as, as discouraged as everyone gets, that most of us keep soldiering on. So the only way you can do that now is to just get tuned in to the new way of doing things. Um, I'm such a grassroots guy. I have been for so long. It's kind of, I mean, my mainstay is live performance. It doesn't do with labels. It's just, you know, it's an audience that I've built over the years, and a lot of other people helped me build, but but it's it's just out of my touring base, and uh, that's what we're trying to do with this new record, is I'm not so concerned about how many streams or how many sales there are, as long as it uh, translates into a new fan here and there, you know, someone mm-hmm. to come out when I do a live show in their town. Well, you know, it, it's interesting, you know, uh Spotify, one of the biggest problems I think a lot of artists have with that platform 
is that it the the pay equity is really low. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they did. I, I read a study where if you look at the music industry, um, you know, of all the billions of dollars that come into this industry, only twelve percent gets funneled back to the artists that are actually creating the product that is being sold. Um, most of it is absorbed through all of these, you know, middlemen that permeate through the music industry. You know, if you take the, the the sports industry, you know, the NBA, the NFL, athletes actually get up to 50% of all the generated income in that industry, which is a huge disparity. Um, yeah. Now, you know, we all, you know, love the fact that Spotify gives us a worldwide audience, but we would like to get paid for it. And I know there is a new technology that's coming down the pike um, that is a blockchain-based um, streaming platforms that is the same technology that's used in cryptocurrency, but it is going to be used to not only give the artists up to 90% of the generated income from their music, but it's going to pay them immediately upon a stream, and it's going to be transparent because the blockchain is a public ledger. And and that public ledger is examinable by anybody. So that in itself, the transparency, the, the fact that you get paid immediately and you get up to 90%, can really revolutionize the whole streaming platform. You know, as long as the consumer still can get their convenience, I don't see how, you know, that could fail. You know, especially if the larger artists abandon, you know, Spotify and Apple Music for these new platforms, the fan base is going to follow them. And the independent artist now has that advantage of, of gravitating to that with the larger artists. What do you think of that as, as being the future of streaming coming going forward? Well, I'm intrigued by it and encouraged by it. I, uh, it's really the, the first that I've heard of it uh, in any detail when you were talking to me about this. And, uh, uh, you know, I something I, I've been waiting for whatever the next thing is. As you say, what will revolutionize things? Because all through the years, we've seen it from 78s to 35 RPMs and 45s and and 8-track tapes and cassette tapes yeah. and CDs. And you know how it is always something that, that, that's, that's coming along, the next way of getting the music to people. But uh, as you're saying, you know, there's no problem with people getting their music now. Oh, uh, no, yeah. The artists themselves don't have much incentive to keep producing work if you don't get paid for it. So, um, you know, most of us aren't really trying to be gazillionaires anyway. But, yeah, I think that would be a much more equitable uh, way to do it. Yeah, I, and I, I agree. Like now, yeah. one of the things that I noticed, um, when the pandemic hit, a lot of artists started to gravitate towards the internet, you know, doing live streams. Uh, they had time on their hands. They started to work their social media. And what happened was is that, you know, while they were still trying to stay connected to their fan base, 
the fans started to really gravitate towards um, this reality show mentality that gets attached to this world of social media where, you know, you put up pictures of what you ate for breakfast or you, you know, your your cat or your dog, what they did cute today. Or, you know, I know, you know, my wife sits down before she goes to sleep every night and she goes through, you know, puppies, kittens and babies all, you know, for yeah. for an hour, you know, and, and it's part of our mindset today that, you know, they want fans, I think, want to have that personal connection that they know an artist more than what happens up on the stage what happens in their world outside of that their home uh when you do a live stream from your living room you know they get to see you know what your living room looks like you know or they see that treadmill you never use but except to hang you know laundry on you know and 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 they can relate to you as an artist because you're just like them, you know that. Right. You know that it's not some you know golden gilded mansion that you live in, but it's a home just like their home, and and yeah. I think that endearment or that you know that almost branding of you now becomes the product that you you're selling the brand. It's the brand that they wear on the T-shirt. It's the brand that they buy the ticket for. You know. Um, this whole world of um, social media and, and and streaming and so on, it also has attracted a new fan base that really never grew up with that frame of reference of going to a small venue and watching music in the moment, right. being created by musicians that... All of their experiences of the day get translated into that performance. And it's something you will not see again. Their frame of reference is going to those big shows, you know, where the music sounds exactly like the recording. That the, you know, the, the, the excitement is generated by lights and pyrotechnics and costume changes and choreography. You know, the artificial things. Instead of that... Uh-huh excitement from that music in the moment um how are you negotiating this new world of social media and branding and 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 live streaming how has that affected you as an artist so far well it's just all part of that continuum of of learning you know new ways of doing it all and uh i was uh kind of reluctant uh to jump into that online thing for years you know folks have been doing it and uh, before the pandemic and i, I kept thinking oh, i should do that but i just i just didn't do it and uh, as you say when the pandemic hit i had to get in there and figure that out i've you know the and it's interesting hearing your opinion on it because i mean we all have one obviously and, and some folks i've talked to when i was doing my handful of online shows i did during the last couple of years um, and I was invited to do a couple of them as well. But I put on several from my house here, and it's in the studio with Dave Coleman where we worked and did some things from there. And they were, you know, they were well attended. And, and in those months I did them, uh, you know, income-wise, I made probably, I probably made about as much as I would have cleared, maybe a little less than I would have cleared if I'd been out on the road, you know, buying gas and food and driving everywhere. 
So it was sort of a, that was interesting. Um, but the numbers did fall off. And I did a show with Lyle Levitt, who's, uh, he invited me to do one here a couple months ago with him. And, you know, he, his, even he was telling me that it's, um, early on the numbers were huge uh, after a couple of years of doing the shows. And he had, you know, incredible guests on there. I mean, uh, and quite a fan base himself. But the numbers just uh, um, started to, to drop off. He still had, you know, quite a few people watching, but nothing like in the early days. So I don't know. Um, a lot of people told me, too, they criticized me for doing it in my living room. I said, you know, don't do something like uh, try to make it a different kind of a setting, something that's interesting to people. And the bar certainly got raised. I mean, I've seen some pretty elaborate um, Oh, yeah, people, people are getting, made. they're getting good at it now. They you really know. are. They really are. Well, if, if you and think I'm, about it, I mean, you're, you're walking around with a TV production studio in your pocket, you know, with your yeah. cell phone. Uh, yeah. All you have to do is just interface it properly, and boom, you're you're in, you know? Yeah, it's true. It's true. It is amazing. Uh, I really appreciate like, the Zoom concerts I did because I could actually see the audience. And right. that was pretty cool. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm gearing up to do another one at the end of this month. Uh and uh, since I've been off the road here for a month, I, I you know, it would be smart to do something. And, and just it gives me uh, a reason to play guitar again and sing some songs again. Remember how they go. I spend most of my time doing the admin work now. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you know, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking with us. And uh, we're going to give everyone out there a double shot from your new release. You guys may just want to turn it up loud, open the windows, screw the neighbors. We're going to have some fun. Yeah. I see your face in the stars Lighting the lonely minds And then there are times I see nothing at all Only a vast empty sky One star is shining like it has no choice I wonder if that's where you are Deep in the night I hear your sweet voice Singing along in the dark I'm laughing and crying at the same time Living and dying every day Open my heart to the whole human race With a tear in my eye And a smile on my face I feel more same time Sometimes it hurts to see the sunrise Pushing my shadow aside Lights every corner and melts all that ice Leaves me with no place to hide A smile from a stranger The wave of a hand I'm not alone Anymore. A torn piece of paper that captures your life I remember what your life was for Laughing and crying at the same time Falling and flying away Open my mind to the whole universe With a joyful cry 
is shining like it has no choice I wonder if that's where you are Deep in the night I hear your sweet voice Singing along in the dark Oh, you're laughing and crying at the same time Living and dying every day Open your heart to the whole human race With a tear in your eye A smile on your face You're more alive When you let your heart ache With a joyful cry And a lump in your throat You might as well try
lights up the purple sky And as I wonder where you are I'm so lonesome I could cry I'm so lonesome I could cry artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. Make you shout now, honey. 